Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome. My guest today is John Daly, the outgoing CEO and now a senior fellow at the Grattan Institute. John, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure as always, Alex. So where do we start? You've had an incredible career at, uh, at Grattan. Maybe if you could give the listeners a bit of a backdrop to what you're most proud of and the priorities that you saw as part of your tenure there. So, I mean, the fantastic thing about running Grattan for 11 years was just the sheer breadth. So running everything from a program on health, on transport and cities, on school education, on household finances, on budgets and institutional reform. You know, it was a really big canvas. Some of the things that I look back on and think, yeah, that was really worth doing. We did a piece quite early on, I think back in about 2012, called Game Changers that kind of talked about what were the biggest priorities for Australian governments. That I think shifted quite a lot of the conversation in terms of understanding that increasing rates of older age workforce participation, female workforce participation, particularly as a result of the costs of childcare and tax reform were really the three biggest things worth doing. And that kind of overall prioritisation, I think, had largely been missing from a lot of the conversation and certainly doing it in a disciplined way. We were very big players in the school funding reform debates, and I think we probably helped get a set of sensible reforms over the line that Minister Birmingham was promoting. We've been very big players in the tax debates. Notoriously, capital gains tax and negative gearing haven't moved, but I think we've been significant. We made a significant contribution in terms of changing the public conversation, and I'm a big believer that once you win the hearts and minds of the people, the hearts and minds of our politicians eventually tend to follow. And then, of course, we were very significant contributors to the superannuation debates, both about the costs of superannuation, taxation of superannuation, and the superannuation guarantee and its implications for retirement incomes. How do you feel you've gone in making a change in the superannuation debate? Oh, look, I think we've done well. And I think it's worth understanding, you know, why on earth out of all the things we could have gone after, did we spend so much time on superannuation? And the answer is in the overall scheme of things, it is more than big enough to care. When you remember that the kinds of things that we're talking about in terms of reducing the costs of superannuation are worth an increase in GDP of about depending on exactly what you believe about how much you can take out in costs, in the order of about 0.5% of GDP. Now, there's not a lot of reforms in the Australian economy that are worth that kind of money. And so that's one of the reasons that we spent so long on the costs of superannuation is, is that in the, in the overall scheme of things that governments can do, that would increase the productivity of the economy. If you could take $7 billion a year out of the superannuation cost base of about $30 billion a year, well, that's $7 billion a year that Australians will have to spend on other things. That's effectively, their money will get managed more or less the same way. It'll have more or less the same returns. That's $7 billion a year, half a percentage point almost of GDP that you can spend on other things. That's a, that's a big shift. In terms of the superannuation taxes, it's one of the largest single opportunities in terms of budget repair that has relatively little in, impact on the economy. Obviously, 
anything that increases the amount of tax paid has an impact on the economy. But faced with difficult budget situations, the opportunities in super were larger than most of the other areas. And then in terms of the super guarantee, the change that's planned in terms of increasing the super guarantee from 95 to 12% takes a very big chunk of money out of the hands of either workers, we think that's where most of it will come from, or employers and puts it into the hands of super managers. And again, in the overall scheme of the total amount of money flung around in the Australian economy, it's a it's quite a large chunk. And you know, relative to anything else that government can do, it's it's probably one of the biggest opportunities that we could see. Before we dig into the the specificity of super, and I think there's there's a lot there that we can touch on, I wanted to bring up the COVID situation and how mm. does that potentially change the priorities for superannuation and for the government? Yeah, look, I think that's a really interesting shift. We, uh, the work we've done at Grattan over 11 and a half years has always had this theme of prioritisation, you know, try and figure out what's big and what's little. Now, if you ask what's the biggest thing, single thing you can find for budget repair, as I said, super pops up pretty close to the list. What's the biggest thing you can do for increasing productivity? Super pops up pretty close to the top of the list. And, and in a normal world, those would be two of the things you care most about. You know, how do I repair the budget? How do I increase productivity? COVID, of course, is different. COVID suddenly changes the priorities because there's a bunch of things that if you don't do them now or within the next six months, then the costs of failing to act are really high. In a normal world, if you kind of repair the budget next year rather than this year, that's unfortunate, but it's not that big a deal. Ditto with productivity reforms. COVID is different because for once, the urgent is important. And in particular, the failure to ensure that there is, that that you've got the right kind of health measures in place means that lots more people die and lots more economic damage gets done. The failure to ensure that you've got the right kind of fiscal stimulus in place means that lots more people, two, three, four percentage points of the population wind up unemployed for longer. And that can have not just impacts for the next 12 months, but it has impacts over their entire working lives, both as individuals, they're less less likely to be employed. And from an economic perspective, overall, if they're less likely to be employed, then we have a less productive economy. So the priorities do change with COVID. And we recently wrote a publication called The Recovery Book that was aimed at laying out how do the priorities change. And, And one of the things that really hit us was there is a very large number of things that governments have to do over the next six to 12 months, because if they don't, then the long-term impacts are really large. So as we've seen over the last week or two in, in Victoria, they do have to stay on top of the health situation and all of the restrictions that come in and out. And of course, thinking all of that through consumes an enormous quantity of the bandwidth of government. Then governments have got to work out, well, what do they do about the various programs that are in place all of which are scheduled to come off about the end of September, beginning of October. I think the reality is that, in in fact, they will be more staggered, but that's got to be worked through. So things like JobKeeper, JobSeeker, the various changes to regulations around insolvency, around retail tenancies, around commercial tenancies, those are all the things that are in place that one way or another are going to have to be unwound, but unwound in a way that's more subtle than just kind of turning them all off at the end of September. Then you've got a series of things that you need to do because 
you need to repair the damage. So in particular, you want to be thinking about school education and the way that a number of kids, particularly those from disadvantaged backgrounds, will have fallen significantly further behind during COVID because we know that you've got remote learning disadvantaged students learn less than students that have got better parental backgrounds. And then there's a bunch of things that we've put in place that we probably don't want to go back to where we were because that's probably not best answer. So in particular around telehealth and many of the ways that we've changed the health system around how the interaction between the public health system and the private health system, that all needs to be worked through over the next six to 12 months as we return to maybe not normal, but at least less abnormal than we've got. So you kind of add up all of that agenda and you go, crikey, that is a huge amount of stuff to get through. If government gets all of that right, that would be a miracle. If they try and do other things, they will probably just do them badly because they don't have bandwidth to do it. So the way that that, I think, plays out for super is much as I would love to see the costs of super reformed, much as I would love to see the default system change so that we substantially reduce the costs. I don't think that's a priority for the next six to 12 months because it's a difficult reform, but frankly, it's not urgent. It's been the way it is for a very long time. If it happens 12 months later, that's unfortunate, but it's not the end of the world. On the other hand, I think the increase in the super guarantee is an issue that we want to have a look, long, hard look at in the next six to 12 months, because it does have urgent impacts. If you have a globally synchronized deep recession, and that looks like the world we are in, that has got to be the worst possible time to take money out of the hands of either workers or employers. And it's got to be at least one of those two and give it to superannuation funds to invest in the hope that they eventually get around to giving it back to people in 30 or 40 years time. Now is not the time to be taking money out of circulation in the economy. One of the things that happens in recessions is that the savings rate goes up. People get frightened, they stop spending, in effect, they they start saving. We've already seen that happening in the Australian economy. That is not the time at which you want a legislative change to further increase the super rate. Now, obviously, we don't think that that increase should happen in the best of worlds anyway, but it definitely shouldn't happen during COVID. And so I think that that's one where the priority goes up. Then the other priority that I think changes a little, albeit for the longer term, is around super tax arrangements. So there's already been super uh, changes to the superannuation tax arrangements. I don't think we were anything like the only voice saying that they were ludicrously generous and the reforms that were put through by the Turnbull government three years ago or so, three or four years ago, were definitely in the right direction and they were material, but there is much further to go. And the reason that that probably increases in priority is governments are quite rightly spending a lot of money at the moment to try and keep the economy moving and to minimise the long-term effects on unemployment. That is classic budgetary theory. When your economy is facing a really big, bad downturn, then government should increase its spending and reduce its taxes in order to keep the economy moving. But of course, it has to get paid for at some stage down the track. And the question is, who's going to pay for it? And you know, the easy and obvious way to pay for it is just to increase income taxes. But that does seem very tough for a younger generation that has essentially borne the brunt of this event that we're going through. It's the younger generation that's wound up with a lot more unemployment, very disrupted study, all of those kinds of things. 
it's an older generation that we've respect has taken some hits, but nothing like the same kind of hits. And a lot of this has been done, frankly, because we were trying to protect the health of an older generation, because very notoriously, COVID doesn't have anything like as much of an impact on, on a younger generation. If we were to ask a younger generation to pay now for COVID and then pay, pay twice um, in the future, simply on the basis that they've got to pay all of the income tax, extra income tax, to pay for the current spending, that seems a bit rough. And therefore, I think we are going to have to look at the superannuation arrangements that do mean that a large number of Australian older citizens basically pay no tax at all or pay very, very little. And I think as we come away from the COVID period, as we're kind of dealing with the wash up and the fact that budget deficits are much larger, the debt is much larger, we're dealing with the question of who's going to pay for it. I think it will very much put the taxation arrangements for superannuation back on the table. Again, I don't think that's an issue that has to be solved in the next six to 12 months, but I think that the importance and fairness of solving it in 18 months time will be much stronger as a result of the COVID crisis and the way that essentially a younger generation has just paid once big time and it's going to be very unfair if we ask them to pay twice. So you covered a lot of ground there and I'll start to dig into a whole range of it. One of the, the pieces you talked a little bit at the start about sort of supporting the economy and ways to do that. And so the, the SG can't continue to increase if, if the government looks to continue to support the economy. Obviously, the government has announced early access and we've now yep. seen 2.7 million people apply, $23 million, a billion dollars, I should say, has already come out. So that's a huge support for, for GDP. What's your thoughts on, on early access? I think the time that we put the original arrangements in place, they were appropriate. I mean, super has always been a trade-off between money today and money tomorrow. And I think one of the problems with the entire exercise is everyone's pretended there was no trade-off there. And, and we've all just been reminded, yeah, there's a trade-off. To be very accurate, it's money today or more money tomorrow. And then the question is, well, which do I care about more? And the answer is, in a really deep crisis like COVID, maybe you do care about money today more than you care about more money tomorrow. Now, that said, it certainly looks like many of the people that withdrew money from their super didn't actually fit the guidelines. It does appear that those guidelines were not being really checked by anyone much. There was a kind of very much a view that if somebody applied for it, then essentially the money should get paid out. I think the kinds of rules that the government articulated but didn't necessarily enforce in terms of the first lot of early withdrawals should be enforced. So frankly, if you are continuing to be employed and continuing to draw more or less your existing wage, there is no reason that you should be withdrawing your money early from super. So now that we're beyond the early emergency, I think it is appropriate to start enforcing those rules much more than we have been. So that'd be observation number one, and it might well be that given that you've got a little bit more time to design those rules, you might want to tighten them up a bit if you were the Commonwealth government. Uh, but I think actually the real problem is not the rules are wrong, the real problem is the rules have not been enforced. So I think that's the, and I think if they were enforced, then the quantity of money that was coming out of super would be materially lower. There are also questions about, frankly, where that money is getting spent. I mean, if, if that money is getting withdrawn by people who've just lost their job and they're using it to essentially tie themselves over and manage to keep up with a mortgage, I have quite a lot of sympathy for that. If they're withdrawing it from super and spending 10 grand gambling online, I've got rather less sympathy for that. So I think, and that again comes back to enforcing the rules and looking at 
what are the individual circumstances of people who are withdrawing super? Do they fit within the guidelines for whether or not they should be allowed to withdraw it? And if they don't fit those guidelines, then they shouldn't be withdrawing it. The other thing that comes up, you know, when you think about this withdrawal is there seems to be this moral argument, ideological debate about sort of superannuation, and this is people's money and they deserve it. So how do we get the right framing around what the purpose of super is versus the role of superannuation in actually providing for people's retirement? Yeah. I mean, look, I think obviously the primary purpose of superannuation is to supplement incomes in retirement or, or to use the phrase, I think, from the Murray Inquiry, to supplement or replace the age pension. But the reality is it has always been a big pool of money. The reality is the totality of the purposes of super have always been, frankly, pretty vague, including all the way back to its founding. And the reality is that it's a very large pot of money that might have the original purpose of being there to look after people's retirement or to, to help them in retirement. But it can be, you know, it's money, right? It's fungible. It can be used for other purposes if you really want to. Now, I would be the first to say that if you're serious about it being used for retirement, then allowing people willy-nilly to withdraw it early is very undesirable, kind of like upsets the entire purpose of the exercise. If, on the other hand, you want to say it's a really big pool of money and its primary purpose is to look after people's retirement, but in severe national emergencies, we might think about other uses for that money, that doesn't strike me as completely crazy. And there's no reason to prioritise money in retirement over every other consideration. The reality is that retirement is not sacred. There is no reason to say the first and primary purpose of national policy generally is to ensure people have a satisfactory retirement. And after that, we'll worry about other things like, are they going to wind up long-term unemployed for the next 20 years? Now, I would argue it is quite right to say that preventing people from being unemployed for 20 years is a lot more important than ensuring they've got a bit more money for their retirement. So those are the kind of trade-offs that I think this has exposed. And I think it's very undesirable to let people withdraw from money early from their super in general, but it might well be justified in a national emergency, which is in effect what we are living through. So if you think sort of 30 years down the track, the whole claim is that people are missing out on very large sums of money during retirement. Are there potentially other levers that the government can pull to sort of help address these problems? Look, absolutely. And of, and of course, the biggest of those levers is the age pension. And of course, one of the things that's getting glided over in a lot of the debate is, yes, you may have somewhere between forty dollars and $70,000 less in, in superannuation when you retire, if you take out 20, now, 20 grand now. And of course, how you think about that depends a lot on your assumptions. And one thing that we should be careful about is that people use the same assumptions all the time, rather than just changing them, depending on which particular argument they're trying to win. But in terms of that lower superannuation balance, one of the consequences of a lower superannuation balance is that people qualify for a materially higher age pension. And so the net loss in retirement income is much less than that 40 odd thousand dollars. And so, yeah, in effect, government already has something in place, which is called the age pension, and it works pretty well. You know, I think all of the work that we've done and that others have done suggests that People who, are, who have no superannuation, but who do own their own home and are on a full age pension are by and large doing okay. 
look, it may not be peaches and cream or more to the point, Wagyu and, and Shiraz, but it's definitely a perfectly civilised existence in which nobody is in poverty. And I think one of the other things that's emerged is that, of course, assumes that you own your own home. The people we do have to be worried about are the people who are on a full-age pension, do not have any material superannuation, and who are renting. And, of course, there the right lever for government to pull is to increase the rate of Commonwealth rent assistance, much more effective than many of the others. And I think one of the issues in the whole retirement incomes debate is that there's a real tendency to sort of see every problem as a as a nail requiring the superannuation hammer. And there's no question that superannuation is a great tool for retirement. But if you're worried about people who have relatively few resources and who are renting, then getting everybody to put more money into, the, into their superannuation is not the right answer to that question far better for government to target its support rather than providing lots of extra superannuation concessions, tax concessions to lots of people to provide extra Commonwealth rent assistance to a relatively smaller number of people. So I think, yeah, government's got other tools in its armoury, most important of which are the age pension and Commonwealth rent assistance. How do you balance the issue between the rent assistance for someone who doesn't own their own house versus people that do own their own house? Is there a way, for example, to lower the assets test so that does create a balance rather than just these increased costs? I think it's tough because the people you're trying to help are the people who don't own a home. So the easiest way to help them is to is provide rent assistance. And if all you do is change the assets test, particularly assets outside of the home, you know, that's terrific for people who are renting, who have lots of assets, but dirty secret, there's not very many of them. And more to the point, if they are in that position, then they should fire their financial planner. You do have some people that are sitting in one or $2 million properties just because yeah. of oh, the way inflation There is no gone. question that we should be looking, at, rather than making the assets test more generous than it is at the moment, we should definitely be looking at um, including more of the value of owner-occupied housing in the assets test. As you know, at the moment, we have this slightly odd situation in which, in effect, the assets test includes the first $200,000 value of your owner-occupied housing and then ignores the rest which when you think about it is completely the wrong way around. It would seem far more sensible for the assets test to say, we're going to ignore the first pick a number, half a million bucks of the value of your home. And after that, we're going to take it into account because by definition, it's much more like a conventional means test. And of course, one of the things that people forget about that pension assets test is when you impose those kinds of rules, given the way that the pension loan scheme works, Anybody who's then, as a result of those rules, getting less than a full age pension is perfectly entitled to continue to get the full amount of the age pension, but just effectively accumulate a debt against their home. The way that that's set up is the Commonwealth never collects that until that person dies. So the only people who, in fact, lose out of including owner-occupied housing in the assets test are the heirs and successors. So I can see why we are worried about looking after people who are in their retirement, but I can see no reason for government policy to effectively be subsidising increased inheritances, which is what it does at the moment. Well, the interesting piece around the whole inheritance is that that actually keeps perpetuating the inequality issue because you've got these people being passed down large amounts of wealth. And if you're lucky and you've been born into a family with large amounts of wealth, you will do well because you've already been passed on a sizable sum. So to try and address that imbalance, I think is, is going to be really critical. 
Oh, no, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the one thing that we know from all of the work that's been done in, about inheritance around the world is that inheritances are invariably wealth concentrating. Basically, the richer you are, the more likely it is you inherit and the more likely it is you get a big inheritance. So anything that governments can do to reduce inheritances is likely to reduce inequality over the long term. Let's go back to this whole moral outrage that I think comes around superannuation. And, and there are some people that are really questioning superannuation and the amount of agency issues that are there, the amount of costs that are alongside the system and the concerns around the amount of money that super has and its power. Have you got some thoughts on that broader framework of superannuation as a, as a whole structure? I would suggest, you know, superannuation is like a sharp knife. It can be used for good. It can be used for ill. Overall, if it's used well, it can be used for a lot of good. And so I think we need to work out how do we refine the system so that it's used for good. Now, I think the cost of the system is unjustifiable. Now, depending on exactly whose numbers you use, the cost of the system is between 20 and $30 billion a year. That's somewhere between 1% and 2% of GDP. It is just beyond imagining that we should in fact be spending one to two percent of GDP simply managing our money for retirement. If I told you that I was going to set up a brand new Commonwealth department to manage everybody's money and then give it back to them in retirement, but I wanted 20 to 30 billion dollars a year to run it, bearing in mind that the tax office costs three or four, it'd be a pretty short conversation with the treasurer. So there's no question that we are spending too much money doing this. That is a net drag on productivity. And yeah, there's a, I think there's a legitimate moral outrage about you know, how is it that an industry has managed to capture that larger part of the nation's total resources, essentially just for managing its money. So yeah, I think that there is a moral outrage around that. And in a sense, there should be, because it does seem to be very disproportionate. Of course, that's terrific for people who are working in the industry, but it's less obviously terrific for, for the rest of the country. There's a clear example of just the amount of super funds that are still out there. I know that they're decreasing at a fast rate, but we still probably have at least 30 CEOs that are on 500,000 plus. You've now got a number of CIOs on a million plus. Uh, I'm surprised there hasn't been the outrage specifically around you know, the costs here for particularly a, a mandated system. It's almost yeah. like a bureaucracy. I mean, and and, and we shouldn't be surprised about that. I mean, classic Weberian theory would say, if you have not-for-profit institutions, they'll say, look, proudly, you know, we're not-for-profit. But what happens is that the employees wind up capturing a substantial part of the surplus. That's what happens. So I'm not surprised that we've wound up with lots of people in the superannuation industry being paid what appear to be pretty large amounts of money for running a, a, a highly regulated business in which both your income and your costs are largely a consequence of government requiring everybody else to give you their money. So it does look as though the costs of the industry are very high and the structure of the industry clearly demonstrates that something is not right. I mean, if I go back to my time at McKinsey, which is uh, one of the things I was doing before I was at Grattan, if you see an industry that is essentially asset heavy, with a big economies of scale, and, and the superannuation industry is that, right? I mean, in, in practice, it's basically large computer systems. There certainly ought to be economies of scale in those things. Uh, typically, an industry with significant economies of scale will have three, four, at most five participants, serious participants. Might have a couple of other bit players, but that's typically what an industry looks like when it has significant economies of scale. And, and you know, if you think about 
What is the concrete industry or the steel industry or the airline industry or even the banking industry look like in Australia? It kind of fits that pattern. You know, you've got somewhere between two or five players, probably shouldn't be allowed to have as few as two, but occasionally they manage to get their wicked way with the ACCC. But that's what you'd expect. So you look at super and you discover this industry with, with economies of scale and yet literally over 100 players. And as you say, 30 that are relatively material. And you say, well, that industry cannot possibly be one that's particularly competitive because it was seriously competitive. Essentially, the players with scale would have gobbled up the players without scale by now. And that hasn't happened. Whole bunch of reasons why that hasn't happened. And inevitably, it means that the industry is costing more to run than it should. I guess then the natural question becomes, well, how do we deal with it? You know, the Productivity Commission has sort of done some work. Have you been looking particularly into sort of how the default system could potentially change to to help reduce some of these costs? Absolutely. And of course, that Productivity Commission work was in part, well, largely sparked off by a recommendation of the Murray inquiry into the financial system. And those particular recommendations of the Murray inquiry drew quite substantially on work that Grattan Institute had done in terms of super costs. So now this is a cause that we have been working on at Grattan for a long time. And as I said, one of the reasons we got into this space is that in terms of the overall productivity opportunities in the Australian economy, this is one of the largest ones floating around. So look, we'd be keen to see something done about the default funds. I think we recommended a tender of five players. The Productivity Commission recommended a, a best in show of, of 10 players. I'm not dying in a ditch for five, 10 or 20. Either way, what you're effectively talking about is wholesale competition, one in which firms are competing with each other to win the favour of a very sophisticated purchaser, effectively in the nature of the Commonwealth Government, rather than competing for the favours of very unsophisticated purchases in terms of the public. And we know that, by definition, we're talking about the default funds. By definition, we are talking about consumers who do not make active choices about their super. I remain in favour of, of saying, look, if people want to make active choices about their super, good luck to them. But the reality is most people don't. And more to the point, most people won't. The solution to this is not yet more education. If that were going to work, it would have worked by now. And I think it's a fig leaf that the industry routinely hides behind knowing perfectly well that education is not going to solve this problem. A large number of people in the community are very afraid of financial services. They're very afraid of making decisions about their own money. And their default, and I use that word very deliberately, is to essentially run away and leave it alone. Now, given that we know that that's true, given that we know that that is a universal of human behavior, not just in Australia, but around the world, not for every person, but for a very substantial proportion of the population, if we are going to mandate that people put their money into this system, we also must have a moral obligation to ensure that it's run as efficiently as it can be. And that implies government essentially saying, this fund is better than that one for those people that don't make default choices. One of the problems about that, and whether you describe it as a tender or whether you describe it as best in show, everybody gets really excited about, ah, oh, but what if government doesn't make the right choice about the 11th fund versus the 10th fund? And don't get me wrong, if they pick the wrong one, that's deeply unfortunate for the firm that was really 10th but came to 11th. But, you know, here's a dirty secret. The system is not supposed to be worrying about that kind of fairness. The system is supposed to be primarily focused 
on fairness between the people who are putting their money in. And from their point of view, the virtue, the big virtue of a best in show is that, look, you might get it wrong between firms 11 and 10, but you're probably going to be pretty close between firms 11 and firms 120. And the impact of best in show is that you will without doubt wipe out most of the people in the bottom 30%. And that's where most of the problems are. And the fact that it's a bit unfair for some of the people up towards the top is unfortunate, but my view would be, I'm not so fussed about that. If I've saved a lot of money for individual investors in superannuation, because I've wiped out the bottom third of firms, that sounds to me like a pretty good outcome. Now, of course, one of the ways the industry comes back to that is say, oh, look, you know, what you need to do is cut the tail. And again, they know perfectly well that is never going to happen because they know perfectly well that if government ever tries to say, Alex, your firm has been underperforming and therefore we're going to stop you being a default fund, you will lawyer up and argue that, you know, it's very hard to define underperformance and really you're outperforming in the long run. And, and you know, when government did this, made this decision, whichever agency you've, you've commissioned to do it, ASIC or whoever, you know, they used irrelevant considerations and had improper purposes and used the wrong colours pieces of paper and it will take three or four years to wind its way through the courts. And chances are you will win because courts hate making decisions in which governments have basically said to an individual, we're wiping out your business. So they know perfectly well, if we have a regime which is aimed at simply cutting the tail, at most we will take a few whiskers off it. Whereas from a legal perspective, if you have a system in which government runs a tender and says, well, we're gonna pick the 10 or 20, or it doesn't really matter how many, um, best in show, if you're number 21 and you show up in front of the court and say, well, we were in fact number 20 and we should have got a gig, Courts never get involved unless you can show that basically money got passed under the table to bribe someone to pick my firm instead of your firm. You are never going to successfully launch a legal challenge against a tender. And consequently, from a legal perspective, setting up best in show will be way more effective than simply trying to cut the tail. Now, I'm happy to you know, have rules in place about cutting the tail as well, but I'm prepared to bet you quite a lot of money that in practice, the rules around cutting the tail never get used and the rules around uh, running best in show will be used extensively and will by and large be very effective in cutting out the underperforming 25 to 30% of firms. And one of, of course, one of the beauties of the work that the Productivity Commission did was that I think it showed pretty convincingly that there was 25 to 30% of superannuation funds that had really underperformed for quite a long time any way you counted it. Now, I'm curious as to why you didn't mention one fund, like a, a future fund, as being the default, and then people can then choose if they wish to be active. Yeah, look, I think that that's a possibility. I think the problem with it is that when you set up that structure, you do create a danger that the future fund becomes fat, lazy, and happy. One of the things that is very desirable about a best in show type regime is if you set up the, the, the system the right way, the one thing I would advocate is actually doing it on a rolling basis. If you are going to have 20 funds, as some people have suggested, well, appoint them for four years, five for four years, and effectively every single year you knock out five of them. Uh, and when you have that new, as it were, tender for that five that are rolling off this year, you say of that five, at most we are going to reappoint four and someone else is going to come in from outside. And as we know, 
Uh, if you want people to run fast, you don't necessarily have to give them a prize for coming first. You just have to tell them a leopard's going to eat them if they come last. And so that kind of structure will, I think, keep the default funds focused on, and particularly those who are best in show, focused on ensuring that they don't come last and get eaten by the leopard. So I think that that's one reason not to go down the sort of future fund route. I think the other thing to remember is the future fund does kind of half of what superannuation funds do. In effect, it, it manages a lot of money. But what it doesn't do is all of the retail facing part of the exercise and says, Alex, this is how much money is in your account. This is how much money you have contributed over the last six months. This is how much money we're deeming to have been earned on your account. When you take it out, we're going to keep track of that. Effectively, if you like, it's the sort of quasi banking, bank account part of superannuation. I would be the first to say that is a non-trivial part of the entire exercise. And I think many of those who are saying, well, let's just have a single default fund, haven't thought through that retail-focused individual account-keeping part is actually quite a large part of what we pay super funds to get right. And the future fund doesn't, at the moment at least, to do any of that. And there's no reason to believe that it would be particularly efficient at it. And again, you're back to this, this belief, you know, ironically, we're, Grattan, we're, we're big believers in competition. We think that best in show would, if well-designed, drive a lot of competition. The problem with the current system is not that there's lots of competitors. It's got truckloads of competitors. It's just that they're not competing with each other very hard. And we need to design a system with perhaps fewer competitors, but competitors that do compete with each other much harder than they do at the moment. That's actually very interesting because you talk about the, the challenges from a retail perspective and is there potentially merit to create a system where there's one system around the administration, around the member communications? Because the biggest challenge a lot of super funds have is they don't have a balance sheet. And so when they don't have the balance sheet, it's very hard for them to invest in technology. It's very hard to invest in a lot of member support services. They've got to try and work with partners to do a lot of these things. So if we potentially had a back office that was helping with a lot of these administrative costs that you say are very expensive and then allow all the different funds to really focus on improving their investment decision making. So it's almost as though you've got all these different funds that create their investment pools and then it feeds through to a retail facing almost like an app store to then allow to do all the back-end interaction with the customers. Look, if, if that was going to lead to a super efficient back-end, that'd be terrific. But you've got to remember when government runs a super efficient back-end, you wind up with MyGov, which to be fair, hasn't done that badly, but it's not exactly at the forefront of technology development. I think the system we have effectively evolved at the moment is not such a bad answer. You know, the reality is that most or very large number of these funds are effectively outsourcing their systems for a lot of that kind of account administration. So they basically buy them off the shelf or and then customise them to some extent. I mean, it's interesting, if you look at Australian banking, I mean, you know, sure, they, they customise the systems to some extent, but you look under the covers and an awful lot of it has been, in fact, supplied by someone else who is, in fact, supplying dozens, if not hundreds of banks around the world. So I think there's actually something to be said for that approach that's evolved. You know, it means that, of course, those back-end providers do have the capital often to, to invest. They're for-profits. They're not like many of the super funds, which are not-for-profit, so they, they can raise capital. And, of course, again, because a super fund can switch from one to the other, and if in the brave new world they're actually under a wee bit of cost pressure, I think we would see that pressure 
going backwards up the chain towards the providers of those back-end systems. Perhaps one of the reasons that those back-end systems are not quite as good as they could be at the moment is if the super funds aren't un under that much cost pressure, they probably don't put their providers under that much cost pressure either. That'd be pretty normal industry behavior in any other industry. And I don't see why super is any different. So I think if we put them under more, put the firm, the, the super funds under more pressure, they would put those providers under more pressure. And again, you wind up with the benefits of competition. You wind up with the benefits of multiple, not too many. I would guess the kind of natural scale for that industry is somewhere between three and five players providing back ends to super funds. If one of them falls behind the, the others, then that'll become pretty obvious and it'll go out of business. If there's an opportunity there, someone will set up something new. And as I said, you know, when you look under the covers in Australian banking, an awful lot of it looks precisely like I have just described. So, so I'm not so worried about, again, creating a government system to deliver that. There are some things that it makes sense for governments to provide. So in particular, it does make sense for governments to provide the interface to help me switch my super from your fund to somebody else's fund. And of course, that's in effect what the tax office has built in terms of the choice of super fund regime and the, the regime for switching money from one to the other. The reality is that the only natural owner of that kind of switching regime is government. But, but when you go through it and think, well, how many parts of the super system look like that? The answer is not very many. Most of it effectively depends on the existing fund. That's it. It's worth going through to look at which are the things that do have those kind of features like the switching system where there is no one to own it except government and let's make sure it's been built properly the first time. Let's tie up this conversation with where we started in terms of the recovery. We've obviously seen a lot of impact from COVID and there's also been a lot of discussion about how superannuation can help in the recovery. Just curious to get your thoughts on the role of superannuation to potentially help the recovery of Australia. Yeah, so I mean, obviously superannuation provides a very big pool of investable funds. One of the things that I think that went almost unremarked at the time, it was about seven or eight years ago, is that Australia went from being a net equity importer, which we had been since effectively 1770, to being a net equity exporter. So what that means in practice is that Australians own more of the rest of the world than the rest of the world owns of us. Now, the rest of the world lends us more money than we lend to the rest of the world. But in terms of ownership, equity, we own more of the rest of the world, and that's significantly a consequence of super. One of the consequences of that, of course, is that Australia is basically just not short of equity when we need it, when there is an opportunity where returns exceed the costs and the risks. So I would certainly be expecting that superannuation will invest in the Australian economy where there are opportunities, where the returns outweigh the costs and the risks. And to be fair to Australian super, it's been pretty good at that over the last 20 years, and I don't see any reason for that to change. The reality is that the recovery from COVID will be, I'm guessing, pretty slow. And like most recoveries, you know, the road back will be slower and steeper than the, well, be, will be slower rather at least and longer than the road down. In that kind of world, one of the things that happens is that people are more nervy about investing because they're not sure that they're going to, not so sure they're going to get their money back. On the other hand, we are also in an environment in which interest rates and therefore returns on capital are extremely low and therefore a lot more investments make sense. So I'm certainly hopeful and indeed pretty confident that super will have a material role in terms of finding the investment opportunities that arise and go after them. And, and one of the things about COVID is 
Some of those opportunities will just arise because we've been through a really unpleasant economic patch and a bunch of things got destroyed that no doubt should not have been destroyed and someone needs to rebuild them. But also we will see structural changes in the economy as a result of COVID. Now, my guess is a lot more people are going to work from home a lot more often. So that creates a need for some kinds of infrastructure. And of course, it creates probably net less need for CBD office space. My guess is that we're going to see more people as a result of that, in part, wanting to make their homes even nicer than they are at the moment and probably spending less money on going out because they've kind of got used to that life. And that creates opportunities for all kinds of people. So I think one of the real roles for super here is to find those opportunities that are opening up in the economy particularly because effectively consumer behaviour has changed for the medium to long term, company behaviour has changed for the medium to long term, and how do we take advantage of that? That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, John. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.